Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Amen. I love that song. I love it a lot. You know, there's that breath in our lungs. Our very existence is by the Lord himself. Amen. So it just makes sense for us to pour that praise back out to him in recognition of who he is. Amen. This is our God. And we talked about it a little. Dr. Miller talked about it a little, a little in his prayer about the, the redemption that we have in Christ, the reconciliation that Christ brings to us and God. Amen. And that is enough to make us grateful for a lifetime. Amen. Enough to be able to close my eyes and to think about the goodness of the Lord, as the choir song said, and be able to come up with a million things that I can, I can be grateful for in the presence of the Lord this morning. Amen. Amen. I hope you're ready for his word. Are you ready for his word this morning? All the time. Come on. Yeah. She said, all the time, and that's us, you know, that we are ready for his word all the time because we live in the light of the fact that it's not just sustenance and food and, and clothing and the stuff that we need to survive in our physical body, but we understand that when we were saved, that God began a spiritual work, and I got to have spiritual food to maintain that spirit man, amen? And that is the very word of God, the words of Christ himself, that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, Amen? So there's a weighty thing to come before the Word of God this morning and to open it. And, and um, even more than that, it's a weighty thing that we're able to do it with such freedom, without fear of harm or persecution this morning. Amen? And I hope that we'll keep that at the forefront of our minds and our hearts, that we will be grateful, live in gratitude for a country that allows us to do that, and we will be unified in keeping it that way. Amen? In a way that we will not be persecuted for believing in Christ. And if that does come, but... The Apostle Paul is going to tell us this morning that there will be no fear for adverse conditions for the gospel. Amen? This is the word of God that we come to, and it's not just something that we subscribe to as like a religious practice, but it is God himself, his word, breathed into us if we would take the human responsibility to submit ourselves, to surrender to the word of God. Amen? It's beautiful, and I hope you're ready for the word this morning. If you are visiting with us, um, Pastor Paul, he's our senior pastor, and we did say that he was away, but he's been going over a book called Ecclesiastes, and he's been doing a message um, series through that, and he's been very careful every week to make sure that we remember that it is not always easily interpreted, um, this book of Ecclesiastes, because when you read it at first glance, it can seem like doom, gloom, and despair and puts you in a real depressed kind of mood, but after you actually get into the meat of Ecclesiastes, there's this overwhelming message that meaning and fulfillment from this life only come as a byproduct of a life that is lived with our creator at the center of it. Amen. And it only makes sense because we are the created and he is the creator and he created us for himself. Therefore, any other existence apart from God, it will never make sense. It will never be fulfilling. We'll always still be searching and looking. Like Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, grasping for the wind, trying to catch the wind. It's futile trying to make this life make sense in the light of earthly circumstance and earthly wealth or pleasure or any of those kinds of things. It only makes sense with Christ at the center. So I didn't want to... Um, stray too far away from that. Earthly things, they only temporarily satisfy, and I didn't want to stray too far from that. So um, Solomon has given us this lesson as a king. He's a king. He's a man who did not experience lack in his life. He experienced great pleasures in his life, and he's looking back on his life kind of toward the end of it, and he's saying, chasing after stuff. You can fill that blank in however you like to, and all of us can fill it in with, with, with a lot of stuff, you know, that I'm um, chasing after stuff. 
is vanity, is worthlessness, but abiding, as the Lord said, that he is the vine and we are the branches. Amen? He is the vine, we are the branches, and our existence should be caught up in Christ, living in him, not on a Sunday, but by a moment-to-moment basis. Yes, that the altar is with us everywhere that we go and we continue to grow in Christ will be the, the encouragement for us today, that abiding in the Lord, that is what fulfills That is what gives us what we seek. That's what gives us what we're really looking for deep down, what we need. We just need connectivity with our creator. And that is the only thing that will fulfill, that will sustain, that will keep us where we need to be in this life. So the same message comes from a man who is no stranger to suffering. He's not a king, but he's no stranger to suffering. So kind of from the other direction In writing the letter that we'll study this morning, he's on house arrest for Christ. The man is the Apostle Paul. The book is Philippians. And if you want to turn there, you can. The book is Philippians. And I'm going to jump around at the very beginning, but then we'll land in chapter 1 and stay there for a while. While you turn there, the history of the Philippians is something that I love. Um, and, And I always call things my favorite thing when I'm doing it like right then. So this is my favorite thing right now. You know, I love the way that um, the Philippian church started. It's very encouraging. It's very beautiful. It should spark something inside of us to say that God can move in the same way today as he did back then. And he can win the lost and dark hearts and souls if we would put our minds, you know, in his presence and allow him to creatively, you know, bring people to Christ in our circle of influence that don't already know him. So at the beginning of the Philippian church, It's really cool. The common practice, Paul was on a second missionary journey, and the common practice would be to go to a new geographic location, find a Jewish synagogue, preach the gospel to the Jews, and then if they would accept Christ and Christ alone as a means of salvation, they would form a church in that way. But here in Philippi, there was no Jewish synagogue to go and visit and, and try in the same kind of way. So what he found instead was a meeting of people by a river. I already like it, you know? A meeting of people like a river, people like you and me, Gentiles, common folk, and they were meeting by a river, and a a lady named Lydia accepted the Lord. Her family accepted the Lord in this humble circumstance. There was another lady that was around that was a slave girl, and she had this spirit that enabled her to tell fortunes or um, prophecies, if you will, that people would take, and her masters made a lot of money off of her doing that. But Paul turns around and casts that evil spirit out of that woman. And then now there goes their profit margin and they're angry and they develop a mob against Paul and his team. So Paul and Silas end up beaten with wooden rods and put into a prison. Yeah, this is the beginning of the church. In the middle of affliction, God is using it to to bring about beautiful circumstances, beautiful things for the glory of his kingdom. So they're there in prison in the middle of their bruised condition and in the middle of their affliction in the middle of possibly bleeding sores and wounds, hurting, they begin to sing praise to God. You know the story. In the midnight hour, they begin to find the joy of the Lord to be their strength, knowing that God is sovereign and he's rescued before and he will rescue again. And he is good now while I'm hurting just like he was before we ever got here, right? And they begin to worship the Lord. I believe out of a heart that is fervent and God breaks the chains off of every prisoner in that place through an earthquake. And then here comes the jailer. He knew that he would be held responsible for the, for the release of all these prisoners and he was gonna be in some grave trouble. So he was about to commit suicide. He was gonna kill himself and Paul stopped him. And then that same jailer that was just about to commit suicide, he said, I accept the Lord Jesus. He and his family came to faith and this is the beginning of the church at Philippi. I think it's really cool. So um, this is the beginning and then 10 years later, the apostle Paul sits down to write a letter back to these people. They're a church that is doing well. And now 
he's writing a letter back to these people who support him. They're propping him up, you know, in some ways, helping him pay the rent on his house arrest so he can stay where he is. And they're sending support, and they love Paul. And Paul, evidently, by the, by the letter, loves them back. But they're doing well 10 years later. This is chapter 1. He says, To all the, Christ, all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. So that is very tangible evidence that the church is doing well because it has structured leadership and is, and is going in the direction that it should be going a decade later. He's actually addressing his letter to the leaders in that church. Now, you remember, if we're talking about a place that didn't have a church at all, didn't have believers at all, and started with a couple women by a river and a jailer who almost killed himself, you know? But now he's addressing a letter to the leadership of the church. So they're doing well. And he says, Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Here he said, and he's going to, um, so the letter is also a joyful letter. It encourages the Philippian church to stay the course. I believe the Apostle Paul would say the same thing to us today, to stay the course, that what God began in the Spirit that we cannot expect to perfect in the flesh, but we submit ourselves to the Spirit of God and He leads us and keeps us growing and keeps us moving. This is Philippians chapter 4. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you and long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. You see Paul's love for these people. You know, Paul has started many churches, and he's done lots of things for the Lord. So imagine a man of that magnitude looking at your congregation and saying, you know, you are the crown that I receive for my work. That's a beautiful thing. He's not, he's not saying light words there. Those are beautiful words to a people that he loves very much and to a church that he is writing to encourage because, and they're doing well and to say, keep on going. He writes them to remember that the joy of the Lord is the strength of every believer and by extension, the church. That individually, we find our strength in the joy of the Lord only. And then the church collectively, as we are unified on that front, the church collectively finds our strength in the joy of the Lord. Amen? Look at Philippians chapter 4. This is what he's saying. How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know that you've always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Now that I, not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. Do you hear Solomon's words speaking back in the New Testament through the Apostle Paul to the Philippian believers? He is saying here that my joy in, in this life what I need to sustain me is not in physical things, whether it's a lot of food or a little food, whether it's in freedom or whether it's in chains. He's saying that my joy is not caught up in the circumstances that life may or may not bring, but my joy is caught up in knowing who Christ is and him magnified. Amen? Him crucified to know Christ. This is the joy that I have. This is our strength, is the joy in Christ. Not that I was ever in need, for I learned how to be content with whatever I have. It's a resolve in the sovereignty of God. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Yeah, you go ahead and say amen. That's all right. Even so, you have done well to share with me in my present difficulty. He reminds them to be undeterred, undeterred and undistracted by temporal things, faulty thinking or bad relationships, and to keep their eyes on Christ. And he does this throughout the letter. Paul 
is giving lessons from prison is what I'm going to call it today. And I hope that we will um, center around the word of God and hear what the Apostle Paul is saying from his house arrest. That in the middle of a difficult situation, he gives some beautiful, beautiful lessons that are in joy. That the joy of the Lord is our strength. You pray with me. Or we'll just wait on you for a second. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your word. God, I pray that you would help us to center ourselves around your word this morning, for real. And to center not our, ourselves as normal or as typical as just to listen, but God, that you would help us to center our hearts around your word that we might be conformed into the image of Christ today. How would you do that in us? God, if we find ourselves in a place of apathy or a place where we are not continuing to grow, God, if we find ourselves harboring unforgiveness, God, I pray that you would give us the strength in your Holy Spirit to let that go. God, if we are suffering this morning, God, I pray that you would help us to have the strength in the Lord and in the Holy Spirit to look at our suffering through the light of your word and to know that you are sovereign, you are God, and you are good, and you work all things to the good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. God, help us to stand strong and firm on your promises this morning and to know your character and to know that you are God and that you are good and you rescue. You have rescued in the past and you are mighty to save today. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the testimony that we stand or sit with this morning. That we have never walked alone, Lord. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your word. In the mighty name of Jesus, we say amen. Lessons from prison. Lessons from house arrest, however you want to say it. The first one that I want to highlight for you this morning, we'll stay now in Philippians chapter 1, and I won't move too much. I'll move one, one more time, but we'll be all right, right? Yeah. So in Philippians chapter 1, the first lesson that, I, that is very clear that Paul is articulating to the people is to keep on growing, to not stop moving, to keep on growing in the Lord, to keep on growing in the admonition, the love of the Lord, to know who he is, and by that, to live a blameless life before the Lord of holiness. Amen? That's what he's going to say. I remember when I first got saved and the church that I was in, it's in Gibsonville, and it's a really small church, and it fit in the sanctuary probably, and, um, and it was just a beautiful time that I got saved and I just remember this hunger that was um, stricken in me after I surrendered to the Lord to serve, to um, serve in any way possible, you know, whatever it was. I wanted to have my hands busy and doing and I, I believe that was just the Spirit of the Lord leading me away from some things and to other things by keeping my hands busy. So I was looking for ways to do that and I would go to the church in the morning and I'm not saying as like a religious practice to just check the boxes of when I went to pray and things like that, but I would go in the morning and then I was going to Weaver Center sometime in there in high school. Some of y'all know where that is. And so I'll leave my high school and go to Weaver. And on the way, I would try not to be late to school every day. Um, and I would stop during lunch and I would pray. And then I would get off of school at Weaver and I would go to the church again. And anyway, so I ended up, one of the ways that I started serving first was to clean. I signed up with this old man, he's passed now, and to clean the church. And um, every month, once a month or something. And I remember that that, that just kind of stuck with me when I was when I was brought to this place of keep growing, I, it took me back to the first, 
for the first time, what God was doing at the beginning. And I remember learning how to worship the Lord when I was cleaning a toilet. You know, I'd be singing hymns that I was just learning and songs that I just learned and vacuuming the church and mopping and doing and learning from him. He probably, no, I don't know. I think I was a good cleaner, Cindy. I do. <laughs> I was thinking he might he might have had to come behind me. And if you ask now, like a few years later, Cindy may not agree today. <laughs> I was like, Cindy, I cleaned it. She was like, Jason, you still got tea and coffee cups on your desk. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. But I would clean and I would clean but then I would be worshiping the Lord and doing and then one of the first like real tasks that I was handed was the church sign. That's a very tedious process. You know, after you've done it for a while and you can't think of what it, what to put on there next and stuff like that. So you got to snap the little letters in there and figure out what you're going to put on there and make sure you have enough letters and that you're not saying too much, which for me has always been a problem. And um, so I was doing that, and this gentleman gave me a couple of books, each of them different, with 101 church signs in there. So when I was lacking inspiration or couldn't find a scripture that I wanted to put on there, that I could thumb through those books. And there's one that I saw um, one day. I was probably 15 or 16, and it's been, oh boy, that's... That's a lot of years now, like 15 years ago. And um, I'm getting old. No, I'm kidding. Um, but 15, 16 years ago, and it has never left me. And I, I'm not sure that it ever will. Because when I was reading the words of the Apostle Paul to the Philippians, that echoed back. And all it said was, where growth stops, decay begins. And I believe it was just a warning from the Holy Spirit that if you stop digging in the Word, if you stop digging in prayer, if you stop move, moving in my presence you know, that decay will begin. And we see this lived out in our own lives from Galatians chapter five. It's very clear that when we live in the flesh, there's some things that start to happen. And, but when we live in the spirit consistently and we walk with the Lord, there's some other things that start to happen. The works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. And that it's not by might or power that I continue to live with the Holy, to live for God to keep on growing. It's not by my own um, iron self-discipline, but all it is is just a commitment to Christ, that I continue to take his presence with me everywhere that I go, that I don't reduce what this is down to a religious system of the things that I choose to do on a weekly basis. Like, okay, I read my word this morning and I prayed for a little bit. I went to church on Sunday, so I must be growing. But that's not always the case because we can become apathetic if we turn things into religion. That's where we find ourselves sitting in a pew around the word of God. And this is no, I'm not pointing a finger because I've, I've lived in this, you know, and, and I have to guard myself against this myself. But this is where we come around the word of God and our hearts have a big old yawn and a checking of the watch to see when we can make it to Subway or something. You know what I mean? Y'all know what I'm saying, right? Every one of you know what it is to count tiles on the ceiling or yawn one time or not be engaged, you know? And I think that's where it came for me to where I remember the parable of the sower, that every time that I sit down, and you also know what it is to sit down and start reading the Word. Like I was wired 10 minutes ago, but then I start reading the Word and somehow I start yawning. Don't lie, you've been there, right? Yes? Yes, <laughs> that's the case, that at sometimes if we reduce it down to just a religious practice, we become apathetic and not, not really concerned about what the Lord is having to say to us. That's the parable of the sower, and the enemy would love nothing better than to steal the word away from us in distraction or in apathy, right? Or to move us over to a set of practices called religion. But it's not about that. It's about that relationship. That we'll be people of the presence of God. Me and, and Greg went to help Nancy Meyer this week. And um, 
Nancy Meyer, if you don't know who she is, she's one of our missionaries that we support, and she's at home now, and she's worked for Child Evangelism Fellowship for a lot of years, but she needed some computer help, and I'm no help, you know, none. So me and Greg went. And um, so while Greg fiddled with things, I was talking to Nancy, and I noticed on her computer desk, it said it, she had a little plaque or a, um, a frame that said, practice the presence. And I was talking to her about that, and for sure, it referenced a work that's one of my favorite works. It's a book about that thin. That's, that's part of why I like it, you know. <laughs> but it's a small book, but it packs such a punch, and you can read it over and over and over again. And it's a work that came out of surveys that were, or um, interviews that were given with a man named Brother Lawrence. And one of my favorite parts of that book is he said that he got to the place in prayer where he was with the Lord at all times, really fleshing out what it means to never stop praying, never stop communicating with the Lord. He said he got to the place where it was no more beneficial for him to steal away and pray somewhere alone than it was to be at the, at the sink washing dishes because he always kept the Lord in, he, in his presence. He always stayed in the presence of the Lord without Without, you know, exception. He stayed in the presence of the Lord. How often are we tempted to carry the altar, you know, just on a Sunday and leave it there and not recognize God in the compartments of our lives? Today, we are encouraged kind of to do that, to compartmentalize our lives and to keep God over here on Sunday and to keep my professional life here and to keep, you know, y'all know what I'm saying, keep my family life here. And sometimes that makes sense because you're not gonna act the same way sitting in a pew as you would on a football field unless you're like a Pentecostal or something, you know? I'm just kidding. That's where I came from. That's why I can say that. So um, here, um, but to compartmentalize our lives is dangerous. There should be this thread that runs through every part, every portion, every piece of our lives. And that is Christ, Right? that we carry his presence everywhere that we go so that our life lived with Christ is not a Sunday and Wednesday thing. It's not, it's not a three times a day thing, but it's a moment by moment thing that our relationship with Christ is able, we surrender to the place where he infiltrates every moment that we live, every circumstance, every situation, and we live the word out in the flesh where we do submit every way that we have to the Lord and we have a promise that he will direct our paths to keep on growing, keep moving. That's what the apostle Paul is saying, that we practice the presence, not religion. Amen? We practice the presence, not religion. Listen to what he says. And this I pray that your love may abound, keep on growing yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense to the day of Christ, saying to grow in the love of Christ yet more and more, continue to grow that you might be blameless till the day that he returns. Then he's gonna say, being filled. Everybody say, be filled. Be filled with the fruits of righteousness. Not righteousness that you can produce, but the righteousness that is produced as we live in the presence of the Lord on a moment-to-moment basis, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. Lessons from prison. Another one, the next one that I'll see, that I see very clearly laid out in chapter one is to remember him, remember Christ in suffering and in worrisome circumstance. To remember him in suffering and worrisome circumstance. Paul is in prison He's on house arrest as he writes to the Philippian church and he remembers, I believe, as he picks up his pen or whatever it was that he'd be writing with, that he remembers how God rescued him before. 
He remembers how the Philippian church started. So as he picks up his pen, it's with confidence to know that if God could rescue before, he can rescue again. His stay in prison in the past and the present situations, he's going to let the light of Christ shine on his current difficulty and circumstance and see that it is for his good and for the kingdom. Yeah? Philippians 1, right here. But I would that you should understand, brothers, listen to his response to his chains, to his suffering, that the things which happened to me have fallen out rather to the furtherance of the gospel so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. He's saying because he has been locked up, everybody knows the reason he has been locked up and that the reason he is locked up is because of Christ. So this palace guard, this elite team of professional soldiers, they all know about Christ because of Paul being in prison because of Christ. The idea here is that he is allowing himself to run to the presence of God in the middle of affliction, suffering, and difficulty so that he might see the light of Christ in relation to his suffering rather than running away in blame and contempt. The temptation here would be to say, God, I'm doing exactly what you told me to do and what is my repayment? I'm in prison now. That is the flesh and that could be each one of us. But Paul's beautiful example, his lesson from prison here is as he writes to say that the joy of the Lord is my strength, not my circumstance. And in the middle of this circumstance, I'm going to allow the light of Christ to shine on it so that I can see its meaning. And many of the brothers in the Lord waxing confident by my bonds. These other people, brothers in the Lord, are more confident to speak the gospel because of Paul's chains and much more bold to speak the word without fear, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. This is a consistent resolve in the sovereignty of God. I hear Job in these words. Remember what Job said? He said, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. This is a resolve that God is sovereign and that he is rescued before and he will rescue again. And even if it means death, to live is Christ. To die is to be with him. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I don't know, is what he's saying there. I what not. I'm gonna start using that, I what not. What do you want to eat today? I what not, you know? (laughs) For I am in a strait between the two. I don't know whether it's better to live or die. Because having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better, nevertheless to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, he is in the middle of house arrest. He could very well be put to death at the decision-making moment at the end of this house arrest. He doesn't know where it's going. But listen to what he says. Having this confidence, I believe he's looking back to the past to inform his present. I know that I shall abide and continue with you for the furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by coming to you again. Only let your conversation, the way that you live, Be as it becomes the gospel of Christ. May the way that we live in every circumstance, every situation, difficult or not, become the gospel. That whether I come to see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, 
that we together as the body of Christ stand fast in one spirit, confident in who our God is, confident in his character, confident that his promises are yes and amen. Yes? With one mind, striving together for the faith and the gospel, and in nothing being terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. What if we remember the sovereignty of God and the goodness of the Lord in the middle of our difficulty? We may not outright suffer persecution as the Apostle Paul for claiming Christ in this day, in our location right now. But how we suffer through circumstance, how we suffer through our own difficulty, exemplifies Christ when we allow it to. The world will see that we are shining brightly for Christ when in the middle of difficulty we are recognizing him as the one who saves. We want to be seen running to God in the middle of these things rather than running away again with blame and contempt. Difficult circumstance will cause us to do one of those two things, to storm his presence or to run away. Amen? It is the truth. I'm reminded of the children of Israel, and this came to me because, I, I think, because a couple weeks ago or last week or whenever it was, we were doing the other VBS in Madison, and we were talking about this and going through and preaching this, and this reminds me of the children of Israel when God told them. It was God himself who said, go to the edge of the Red Sea and camp there to the children of Israel. You know the story. And then the Egyptians changed their mind, and they're going to chase in hot pursuit, and they're about to kill the children of Israel. And in that moment, they don't know what's going to happen, right? And I love... Um, the response that Moses gives. And I think his response in that situation is something that is mirror worthy. That's one of those things that you write down or type somewhere and like tape it on your mirror so that you remember this next time difficulty or suffering or a struggle or worrisome circumstance enters your life, that this is something, Moses' response is something to be remembered. Listen to what happens. As Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up and panicked when they saw the Egyptians overtaking them. Difficult circumstance, suffering, suffering they're about to suffer to death. You know, the Lord does not intervene. They cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, why did you bring us out here in the wilderness? Or why did you bring us here to die in the wilderness? This is a newer translation and I like the plainness of it. Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? Can you hear yourself in their response to the difficulty? I would sit down with you in a circle and talk about how many times that I've heard myself in the Egyptians. I'm sorry, in the children of Israel in this moment. Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. In the flesh, that makes good logical sense. You know, it does. Why would you bring us out here just to die? But I believe Moses' response, and I hope that one day I get to the place where Moses' response is my default. That I know enough about the character of God 
that I know enough about his goodness and faithfulness in my life that I would look at a situation that is difficult in this kind of moment and know that no, God did not lead me out here the desert to the desert to die. And then with the New Testament resolve that Paul has given, and if he did, to die is gain, to be with Christ. But in this moment, I will default to trusting in the sovereignty of the Lord even when I don't understand. I hope I get there. Yeah? But only by the grace of God will we get to that place. Only faith has that response. The flesh never will. The flesh will always continue to question. But faith looks at the character of God and has a strong confidence in who he is. Moses told the people, don't be afraid. They did not know. We know what's about to happen. They didn't know that. Pastor Paul gave a, gave, gave a really cool thing when we were doing this in the VBS. He said the Red Sea at that part that they think that they crossed at was, is about six miles wide. And the human eye can only see three miles across water. So you're talking about looking at the ocean, you know. There's nowhere to go. And they don't know what's about to happen. Moses gives this faith response, don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. Help us to apply this to our own lives. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. He didn't tell them to take out a sword and start slicing things. He said, stand still. Watch the salvation of the Lord. And he himself will fight for you. Look at somebody and say, just stay calm. You do it. Look at somebody and say, just stay calm. Know that he is God and just stay calm. Trust in who he is. Know that he is God. That's what Moses is saying. Amen. I want to um, read this to you. This is from 31 Days of Praise by Ruth Myers. And um, I think it's very pertinent to this, this lesson that the Apostle Paul is, is teaching from house arrest. Listen to what she says. This is a prayer, and I hope this can become, again, my default response in the face of difficulty. Father, I'm so delighted that you are both loving and sovereign, that you cause all things to work together for good to those who love you, to those who are called according to your purpose. So I thank you for each disturbing or humbling situation in my life, for each breaking or cleansing process you are allowing, for each problem or hindrance, for each thing that triggers in me anxiety or anger or pain. I thank you in advance for each disappointment, each demanding duty, each pressure, each interruption that may arise in the coming hours and days. In spite of what I think or feel when I get my eyes off you, I choose not to resist my trials as intruders, but to welcome them as friends. Thank you that each difficulty is an opportunity to see you work. That in your time you will bring me out to a place of abundance. I rejoice that you plan to enrich and beautify me through the problem, each conflict, each struggle. That through them you expose my weaknesses and needs, my hidden sins, my self-centeredness, and especially my self-reliance and pride. Thank you that you use trials to humble me and perfect my faith and produce in me the quality of endurance. That's the book of James all day. 
that they prepare the soil of my heart for the fresh new growth in godliness that you and I both long to see in me. And that my momentary troubles are producing for me an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. As I keep my eyes focused on you, I am grateful that you look beyond my superficial desire for a trouble-free life. Instead, you fulfill my deep down desire to glorify you. Enjoy your warm fellowship and become more like your son. I thank you for the bitter things. They've been a friend to grace. They've driven me from the paths of ease to storm this secret place. That's beautiful. May that be our default. That in the midst of suffering, worrisome circumstance, that we don't run away from God with a lot of questions about doubt and those kinds of things, but we run to him. That we storm his presence and even ask those hard questions there and watch the Holy Spirit give us answers we thought we'd never have. Amen? The last one I'll highlight, we've got to roll, is to live in unity, to shine brightly for Christ. These are clear lessons given through Philippians chapter 2 from Paul's house arrest. And we'll watch this. Philippians 2. He's going to ask four rhetorical questions that you'll have to answer for yourself, and I'm sure that we can answer together too. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? We spend all day talking about the encouragement that, encouragement that comes from sinful man belonging to Christ, being reconciled to the Father, but we don't have time. Any comfort from his love? We talk all day about the comfort of the love of Christ. Amen? Any fellowship together in his spirit? You're a blood-bought saint and so am I. We have fellowship today. Are your hearts tender and compassionate? You have to answer that one for yourself. But we can pray, Lord, give us the heart of Christ, the heart of flesh and not of stone. Amen? That we might be tender and compassionate and walk in the steps of Christ himself. Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another and working together with one mind and purpose. Unity. To be unified in the body of Christ, in doctrine, in loving one another, other people, clearly from the word, other people will know who Christ is by our love for one another. Be unified, yes? Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. I encourage you to finish that chapter this week because in verse six, it goes down and it gives a very beautiful example, very beautiful words, which was a hymn about the attitude of Christ, the one who is the name above every name and chose to humble himself as a servant. He said very clearly also that he, nobody took his life from him, but he laid it down willingly for you. Amen? It's beautiful. This is the attitude of Christ, that we should have the attitude of Christ. In this, I see unforgiveness. I see the opportunity for offense 
in personal relationships, not only in the church, but out in the world on our jobs and our families that aren't part of the church, right? You see these things? But when I read that, thinking of others as better than yourselves, I have to come face to face with the idea that I have fallen just as short of the glory of God, if not more than anybody that I might encounter. And therefore, my only proper response to offense is mercy. That's hard to chew on when you're really impacted. Sometimes unforgiveness, that feeling, is not a choice. Sometimes it's not a choice to be or not to be offended. Sometimes we are just offended, right? But I believe the Apostle Paul is pointing to our ability to step out of ourselves into Christ and understand his mercy that we might give mercy through him. Amen? That we might live unified lives. I appeal, he, look at this, of what he says, that he points to in Philippians chapter four. He outright calls out two ladies and says, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. Settle it. And I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women, for they worked hard with me telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose names are written in the book of life. Through the letter to the Philippians, he is very clearly pointing out that we have one mind, one purpose, that we are unified and we should shine brightly for Christ. And there is nothing like unforgiveness to suck the joy out of our lives and the joy of our salvation and, and to suck the unity out of one body, out of one mind and one spirit, right? That we should operate in forgiveness. It's not always easy. But in Christ, it's absolute and it is possible. I want to read one more thing to you from this and we'll close. It's almost time. Same lady. I wish I could just hang out with her for a while, you know. Maybe like a year. <laughs> I might be doing all right after that. No. Okay, so listen to what she says. Father, I thank you for the people in my life who seem to bring more pain than joy. I typically wouldn't read too, but, but y'all, this is good. That seems like a joke, by the way, right? That's very backwards. And only faith will have that response to unforgiveness or toward difficult people in our lives. I thank you for the people in my life who seem to bring more pain than joy. For I believe you have let our paths cross for important reasons. Thank you for the good things you want to do in my life through the things that bother me. They're irritating habits. Their moodiness. None of you are moody, right? <laughs> their moodiness. Their unloving ways. Their demands. Their insensitivity. Their unrealistic expectations. I am grateful that you are with me to meet my needs when others, even those close to me, fail to do so. I am so glad that you are also within me working to make me more like Jesus, more patient, more gentle, more loving through the very things I dislike. Thank you too that you love these people and that your love is adequate to meet their deep needs and to transform their lives, however willful or unwise they may sometimes be. Thank you that you care for them deeply and that each of them, listen to this, each of them has the potential of being a vast 
reservoir from which you could receive eternal pleasure if we looked at those that we harbor unforgiveness in such a way and pray to see the day that we would see them in front of our, in front of our own faces being a vast reservoir of eternal pleasure to the Lord. And so, though I may not feel, feel grateful, I give thanks for them by faith. Trusting your goodness, your wisdom, your power, and your love for them as well as for me. And I praise you that I need not fret about these people, nor be envious or mull over angry thoughts to prove I'm right. Thank you that by your power I can just receive them as you receive me, just as I am. Warts and wrinkles and hangups and all, that I can choose not to judge them, but to forgive them to cancel any debts I feel they owe me, any apologies, any obligations, that through your grace I can choose to wipe clean any slate of grievances I have within me and view these people with a heart that says you no longer owe me a thing. Thank you for your spirit who empowers me so that I can do them good, delight in you, and commit my way to you, resting in you as you unfold your good purposes in these relationships in your time to live in unity. And in that, we shine brightly for Christ. But again, I will say that that is not humanly possible. I don't believe that. Especially those of us who have deep-seated hurt from people, like she said, that are supposed to be the closest to us. It is not humanly possible, but through Christ we do all things. Because what I need, my fulfillment, is not locked up in relationships that I feel like I need. It's not locked up in forgiveness that I feel that I am owed. Amen? But it is in Christ. It is in Christ alone. And that as I die to my flesh and walk in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit forgives and loves through me, amen, that we live in unity. We don't have any more time, so you bow with me. Will you bow with me? I don't know if there's any particular way that the Lord has pricked your heart this morning, and if so, then I invite you to come face-to-face with the Lord in this moment in His presence and deal with that. I don't know, maybe there is some unforgiveness that you harbor that you cannot let go, but it is only by the strength of the Lord this morning that you'll be able to let those things go. And I encourage you to do that. And this altar is open. If you want to come to this altar,